Okay, so <clears throat> over the past few weeks, we've been hearing teachings from our pastors on the doctrine of sin. Pastor Rick covered uh, the origin of sin as seen in Scripture. And last week, Pastor Ron covered a historical overview of the doctrine of imputation, which was very helpful to see the differences in views that still have effect today. Today, I, today I'll be addressing the doctrine of original sin. Now, so often this doctrine of original sin tends to either attract a lot of controversy, especially by those who disagree with the doctrine, but more than often the doctrine tends to be misunderstood. Most people, when they hear the term original sin, assume that we're talking about the very first and original sin act that was committed by Adam and Eve. But actually, the doctrine of original sin does not refer to the very first sin ever committed by man, but it actually refers to the consequences of the first sin committed by man. So again, when we speak about original sin, we're not, refer we're not referring to an actual sin. Uh, in fact, we have a separate category for actual sin, which is a category of sin called actual sin, which we'll be discussing in future teachings, Lord willing. But... Again, original sin describes the fallen condition of humanity that is a result of an actual sin in the past. And I want to start by stating a good working definition of original sin. Here you can see it in the, in the uh, projection. The working definition that we're using is the condition of mankind inherited from our union with Adam consisting of the guilt of Adam's first sin and lacking of righteousness and corruption of our whole nature resulting in actual transgressions and sins that proceed from it. Okay, so that's the definition that we're going to be using um, as we get into the study. Now, I'm sure there are better, more concise definitions, but for the sake of today's task, this is our working definition. Um, we derive this definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 18. You'll see here the question is, what is the sinfulness of the state into which man fell? And the answer is, the sinfulness of the state in, into which man fell includes the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of righteousness, which he had at first, and the corruption of every part of his nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual sins which flow from it. So in that definition, this is what has affected us. This is how it's affected us. Um, how Adam's first actual sin has been carried over to all humanity. So by reading this statement, we can see that this is a true description of the fallen condition of the pre present human race. Now, Mostly every Christian church has some sort of doctrine of original sin, differing in many, many points, some which we consider very important points that they differ on. But nonetheless, they seek to make sense of something that ought to be very clear to all of us, whether you're Christian or not. And what ought to be very clear to everyone is the reality that something is very wrong in this world. And biblically speaking, something is really wrong with humans, with our character. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' writings on original sin is, is interesting and very insightful. I love when he states that even if the Bible didn't tell us that there is a problem with our moral inclination by nature, which the Bible clearly teaches, uh, 
we would still have to affirm it just on the basis of, of rational observations because uh, of the pervasive presence of evil in the world of humans, right? If you didn't believe in the doctrine of original sin or never opened the Bible, you still have to believe it just by a uh, rational uh, observation as you look at, you know, the state of, of mankind. I'll never forget a discussion that I had with some Muslim friends when they, kindly, when they kindly invited me and some of the other brothers here at our church to share a meal with them and talk theology. And I remember asking one Muslim gentleman about the origin of sin and its effects on the corruption of the world. And he disagreed with me when I told him that it begins in the heart of man. That's where sin begins. Uh, and his nature that's inherited from the first man, Adam. Yet his belief, which may not be representative of all Muslims, but his belief was that although sin is always committed by man, sin began from external origins and influences that were outside of man. And his claim is that man is naturally good. And this, this is the idea that from birth you are inclined to do good, and only corruption from the outside of yourself can lead you to sin. That was their idea of where sin originated. But I want you to think about this deeply for a minute. It seems that across the board, universally, we can all agree that none of us are perfect. Amen? Can you raise your hand if you agree? Okay. <laughs> and, and again, it's easy for us to believe that because we're all, that none of us are perfect because we're all living testimonies of, of this imperfection, uh, imperfection. Especially me, you know, I'm on the bottom of the scale of imperfection. Uh, but, however, we shouldn't only agree that no one is perfect without asking the question, why not? Why aren't we perfect? And again, this is important because if anyone holds to an incorrect doctrine that believes that we are all good by nature, or even, for the benefit of the doubt, even naturally morally neutral, we should at least expect a certain percentage of people existing in the world today who have maintained that natural good or even that natural neutrality. But that doesn't exist. Um, and again, even if we blame the outside, our, sin, our sinful surroundings and sinful cultures that are the reason for our corruption, it only begs the question, then why are our surroundings and societies sinful? And yet we know that even those things are made up of human beings. And again, this only points to the fact that corruption begins with man. And, and, and all, I'm sorry, and that all sin finds its beginning in the nature of man. And this nature can be traced back to Adam. So again, this brings us back to the word of God. What does the Bible teach regarding the sinful condition of humanity? Let's look at the catechism question again. What is the sinfulness of the state in which man fell? The answer, the sinfulness of the state in, into which man fell includes the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of righteousness, this is, this is a reality for us, which he had at first, and the corruption of every part of his nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual sins which flow from it. Now here we can identify two main results of Adam's sin. When you look at this answer, we can point out two key things that pretty much summarize what we've inherited. The first, you'll see in the first part of it, the first thing um, is 
the very guilt of Adam's first sin and the lack of righteousness which he had at first. So when Adam fell, we inherited his guilt. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little more. Uh, and also the lack of righteousness which he had at first before he fell. So that's point number one, his guilt. And the second is the corruption of every part of his nature together with all actual sins which flow from it. So in other words, two categories that we've inherited when Adam fell. Guilt, right? The guilt of the sin that he committed. And number two, corruption of our nature. And all the sins that we commit, all actual sins that we commit, are a result of that corruption that we've uh, gained from Adam. Now, those are two points uh, that I'm going to mention, guilt and corruption, but today I'm going to focus on guilt. Next week I'll talk about um, how our, our uh, nature has been corrupted. But today we're going to talk about guilt, um, and, and that'll be our focus for today. I want us to look at a scripture. Uh, we're looking at Romans 5.19. Can someone read that? For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Yeah, so here we see where we get our understanding of where mankind received the guilt of Adam's sin. Notice the beginning statement in this verse. For as by the one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, when we think of guilt, that term can often be confused with feeling or emotion that we often feel when we do something wrong, right? You feel guilty. However, in theology, the word is used as a legal declaration. In other words, when a person is guilty of a crime, it signifies that this person is responsible for a crime, receiving blame. This is what we, this is what we mean when we say that man received the guilt, or in other words, man received the responsibility and blame for what Adam did in the garden. The first sin of Adam strictly and formally considered was disobeying the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was a positive statute and not the moral law. However, it tested obedience more severely than the moral law does because God's moral law carries its only reason with it, while the former, containing no intrinsic morality, appealed to no reason except the mere good pleasure of God. In other words... The eating of a tree does not at all seem like a huge transgression, right? Just picking a tree and eating it, since when was that a sin? But when you analyze it thoroughly, you'll see that to disobey it, to disobey this command, was to disregard the authority of God and involved disobedience of all the law, right? The moral law. Think of the Ten Commandments. So the guilt of Adam's first sin is the guilt of disobedience against God's one law of Eden ex explicitly, right, and against God's moral law implicitly. So his act of eating the fruit was an explicit breaking of what God commanded, but internally and implicitly, Adam was guilty of idolatry. We'll talk about that a little bit more. He was guilty of covetousness. And, and again, so much more involved in that act when he disobeyed God by eating the fruit. And as we examine more of Adam's guilt in the garden, um, we also see that the first sin of Adam was twofold. 
Okay, it was internal, right? There was, there was sin going on in his heart, inside himself. And then, of course, the external, which was the actual act of picking the fruit, eating it, and disobeying God with his deeds. So the internal part of it was the originating in starting of what we would call a wrong inclination. We must keep in mind that when God created mankind, he observed his creation and spoke his benediction by saying, it is good, right? I remember many times, every time I bring up this, the doctrine of original sin to other believers who may not necessarily be familiar with the doctrine of original sin, they're quick to reject it because they assume that what I'm saying is that we were all created evil or all created sinful. But again, like I said, we must keep in mind that when God created mankind, he observed his creation and spoke his benediction by saying, it is good. In other words, the, the, the original way that we were created was good. We see that in Genesis 1.31. Can someone read that? Yeah, so we see originally man was created good. Adam, before he fell, was self-determined to God and goodness. So inside Adam, his, his inclination was actually towards good and towards God. This is where we see that God and man had perfect fellowship in the beginning until sin entered the world. Consequently, in the Garden of Eden, Adam wasn't struggling to choose either good or evil as two contraries to both of which his will was indifferent. In other words, Adam, when he was before the forbidden fruit, he wasn't fighting his flesh and struggling to put the deeds of the flesh to death. That's, that's kind of our problem now because of sin. But at that point, remember, Adam was created good and he had no sinful inclination. So again, Adam, when he was before the fruit, he wasn't fighting his flesh or struggling to put the deeds of the flesh to death. Remember that at this point, Adam did not have a sinful nature and by creation, he was positively inclined to good. In fact, being that his nature was good, it would have been easier and more natural for him to obey God and not eat of the fruit. His probation period, that period of testing while he was in the garden and his task was to obey God, that period in the garden was simply a question of whether he would continue to remain holy as he always was. In other words, it it was easier to just be himself um, because being himself was to be good and to obey God. Now, what does this mean? This means that when Adam sinned, the fall was a self-determination to evil, forsaking an existing self-determination to good. It was inclining away from one ultimate end to another. Adam had to cross over to new territory and enter into a new inclination that prior to sin never actually existed. In, in other words, it, it would have been harder to sin because his nature was good. Meaning that when he did commit that sin, it was a willful one. It was one that he decided and actually committed to experiencing. Um, this rebellion was a willful one, one that he made by decision. This reminds me of a, a friend that I used to joke with and make fun of because he always seemed to get his driver's license, driver's license suspended. And I used to ask him, how do you get your license suspended all the time? 
It's actually much harder for me to get my license suspended than it is to simply obey the rules. And some people, it, it's, it, just seems to, it, it just seems to fall on their lap. Uh, it, it's, it's almost harder to disobey the rules than it is to just follow the rules. Not, you know, not all the time, but just in that specific situation. Anyways, uh, we must conclude that Adam's sin was uh, voluntary and not volitionary. It was voluntary. He chose to do this. He thought it through. Now, I won't go too much into the topic of the will because Pastor Rick We'll be discussing that in a future study. However, it is important to state that this internal act of new and sinful, sinful inclination is also part of what we have um, obtained through our natural union with Adam. In other words, we've inherited this newfound inclination that Adam discovered, if you will, in the garden. And that nature, that new inclination, that experience has been given to us, has been passed on to us in our flesh. And uh, that's where we have that inclination to now sin that prior to the fall did not exist. Now the external part of Adam's sin was the uh, exertion of the wrong act prompted by the wrong inclination. In other words, what was going on inside his heart, you know, the, the actual attempt to grab the fruit and eat it and bite it and disobey in that way, was just a fruit of what was actually going on on the inside. Adam first inclined to self instead of God as the ultimate end, and there at that moment, at there at that moment he became an idolater and, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, like we've seen in Romans 1. Actually, I'll show you the verse. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Can someone read that? Yeah, so likewise, in, in, in order for Adam to gratify his brand new inclination, he reached forth his hand and ate of the forbidden fruit sinning against the Lord. And we see that same thing going on here. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, was blessed forever. Amen. So, therefore, the sin of Adam and Eve really began in their hearts before the actual eating of the fruit. I love what Augustine says in, the book of, in, the, in his book, The City of God. He says, and I quote, Our first parents fell into open disobedience because already they were secretly corrupted. For the evil act had never been done and had not an evil inclination preceded it. And what it is the or, I'm sorry, and what is the origin of our evil inclination but pride? And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes an end to itself. The wicked desire to please himself secretly existed in Adam, and the open sin was but its consequence a quote from Augustine. So again, I think Augustine is right about the sin behind the physical act of Adam's disobedience. It began in Adam and Eve's heart, then it fleshed itself out. 
It's interesting to read of the internal part of Adam's first sin described in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Let's actually look at what went on uh, in the garden. Can someone read Genesis 3, 1 through 6? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So notice how in this narrative, Eve first listened to the crafty wording of Satan questioning her on whether God actually gave such a command. And interestingly, she entered into a discussion with him, and then she believed him. All this internal stuff was occurring prior to the eating of the, the forbidden fruit. The listening, the discussing with Satan, and believing from Eve happened because secretly she desired the forbidden knowledge by which, quote, she would be like God, which you see there. That was the temptation there, according to what it says in verse 5. This lust for that false knowledge to be like God, which um, had, pro uh, I'm sorry, the lust for that false knowledge which had promised Satan explains the internal and mental processes had Eve continued to desire and to be content with the true knowledge that she had, right, by creation, which was all that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful and pleasing to God, if she were to be content in the knowledge that God has given her, she would have remained holy. It is interesting that when you compare the manner in which our, our Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the same uh, tempter, it is amazing and instructing. Like, what you see here, it, when, you parallel it, when you parallel it to Christ's experience when he was being tempted, you'll see the exact opposite. Christ in the wilderness entered into no discussion or debate with Satan as Eve did when she was in the garden. Jesus did not play with temptation because no desire for what God has forbidden rose within him. Jesus Christ as our second Adam did not lust like the first Adam, after the false good presented by the tempter? What does Jesus do with the first two of Satan's suggestions? Jesus instantaneously rejects them, giving reason from Scripture. And the final temptation from Satan to Jesus, which was probably more blasphemous than the others, offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would bow down and worship Satan, Jesus' will was inclined to holiness, right? Both desire and act. And on the contrary, Eve met it with the inclination and liking of her own self. Now, with that said, what does Adam's sin mean for us? 
This new inclination experienced by Adam of selfish will that is directly contrary to the inclinations of God and righteousness unto God. What do we do with that? That has been imputed to us when Adam sinned. We see in scripture that Jesus says that in order for us to be saved, we must be born again. Look at uh, John 3, 3. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Another verse here. Uh, oh, my bad. Sorry. All right, let's go back to that. Yeah, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, this, this idea of being born again, when, you're, um, when you go from one will to another inclination, in other words, when you were born and what you've received through Adam has been uh, imputed to you, it requires you to be born again in order for that will to change. Likewise, the, that concept of being born again is the same thing that happened when Adam fell and for, the, uh, for as a representation of all humanity, humanity, humanity was then again, then again born again into the seed of Satan. In other words, as, as a person who's been born again, uh, how do I put this? As a person who's been born again in Christ, what it meant beforehand was that when Adam fell, you were born as a seed of Satan. Now, um, give me one second because I mixed up. Uh, paperwork here. Okay, let's just go straight to Romans. I want us to read this verse here, Romans 5, 15. Uh, there you go. Romans 5, 15. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. So here we get this concept that what Adam did in the garden, Christ did for us on our, our behalf. In other words, the way that Adam fell, Christ became our new representative. And in him, we're brought to new life. Let's look at Romans 5.16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespass, trespasses brought justification. So again, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. This is the act of Adam, the way, what he committed in the garden, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, look at 5.17. For if, because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So, uh, again, this is just an example that because of one man's trespass, because of Adam's sin, we've all became guilty of, of his act, and death reigned through that one man. Likewise, Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, we obtain through faith. Uh, what, his life becomes our life as opposed to our life in union with Adam. 
Now, aside from the good news that we read about Christ's salvation, hopefully after reading these verses, you can already point out two important key that, keys that Paul is trying to teach regarding the human sinful condition. We see in these verses that the death which came upon all man as punishment came because of one sin and only one, which was Adam's. And then another point you'll notice is that we also see in these verses that this one sin that was committed by Adam is a sin that was counted against Adam, but also his descendants, both as a unity between Adam and all humanity. So uh, just going back a little bit, what Adam, that sin that Adam committed, the way that we received his guilt was that all mankind that were to be born after Adam were in union with Adam there at the garden. The sin that he committed was the sin that we committed. Now, Ron spoke a little bit more about uh, imputation. How, how is it that we receive the guilt? And, and uh, we came to the conclusion that um, we hold to the federal view, which means that Adam was our representative there at the garden. Just to look further, when we look at the phrase, uh, because all sinned, there in Romans 5, 12, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man and death through sin and so desperate to all men because all sinned. The word that is used for sinned in the Greek is the word hamartin. This word is, this is a word in the Greek and this word is active in its meaning. Speaking of the first sin of Adam and all his descendants as a unity. His descendants being one with him by either a natural union or by representation. So we would agree that when it says uh, so desperate to all men because all sinned, what it's saying is that when Adam sinned, we sinned. Um, it is also active in its meaning when we read because all have sinned. Um, it is active as if it is claiming that once you are physically born, you too have committed that sin. In other words, just by the mere fact that you're born as a human under Adam, you are counted as if you committed that sin. The word is also passive in its meaning, signifying either to be sinful or to be reckoned as having sinned, which is where we get this idea that um, we too were actively sinning when Adam sinned back in, in the garden. So here we see that there is a unity that we have in Adam naturally. When Adam fell, we fell. When Adam was given the responsibility to subdue the earth and have dominion over creation, we too were counted with such responsibility. When Adam was commanded to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we, being united with him, were counted with him to obey. Yet we see in scripture that Adam fell and the curse was upon all mankind. Now with that said, I'm fully aware of the common question of God's fairness that seems to pop up in many, in many people's mind when it comes to this idea that one man, namely Adam, was our representative? How is that fair? Many feel that it is not fair for God to punish all because of one man's sin. However, this doctrine of federalism, someone acting on our behalf, actually assumes that we were in fact represented by Adam. But this is the key thing. The, the doctrine holds that that representation was a fair and accurate representation. In other words... This doctrine holds that Adam perfectly represented us. For example, if I hired someone to murder someone else, 
I can be tried for first-degree murder in spite of the fact that I didn't actually pull the trigger. I am judged to be guilty for a crime that someone else committed because the other person acted in my place. Right? So does that make sense? Uh, our representation, uh, if I you know, hire someone to do a job, what they do, they act, uh, they act on my behalf. I am equally responsible uh, for that person. Now, regardless of whether you wished for a different representative, that might be the case. In your mind, you may be thinking, well, uh, couldn't there be someone else that could have represented us in the garden? Adam messed up. Or even if you wish that we should not have a representative at all, we must trust that when God chooses our representatives, he does so perfectly. Being that God is infallible, never in all of human history have we been more accurately represented than in the Garden of Eden. Nevertheless, I understand that this doctrine can be at times difficult to cope with, and we can only answer the question by asking another question that Paul would say, which is, is there any unrighteousness in God? And we know that Paul quickly answers that by saying, God forbid. We know that everything that the Lord does is right. So I want to end this with the truth that even though our union with Adam has brought us guilt and corruption, we ought to rejoice that even though we are guilty by nature and by actual, actual sin committed by us and deserve nothing but hell and misery, God did not leave us in this condition. Like the verses that we read, because of one trespass that led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, namely Jesus Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus is the new Adam. Uh, and, and because of his obedience through his life, we can be dead to Adam and alive in Christ. Uh, many times I think about, um, even personally, um, some of the things that I've seen growing up, some of the things that I experienced, some of the sins that were present in my family growing up, that made me who I am now. Um, I think of the mistakes that my mother did, the mistakes that my father has done, um, that in some way, shape, or form contributed to the person that I am today. Um, these are things that come from that line of the flesh. In other words, the things that I inherit from my parents, the things that carry over, um, whatever things and consequences that I pay for as a person, as a child growing up in a family with many sins, there is freedom when you come to Christ and know that Christ is the new Adam. So if you come from a family with parents that are divorced, and you feel that in your life that has caused effect in your life in some way, shape, or form. Whatever has caused effect in your life through that line of family, you can be new again. You can be uh, born again. You can be of the line of Christ in a spiritual sense. You have that second opportunity to be part of God's family. Now, it doesn't mean that you break away naturally from your physical family, but this idea that, uh, that things don't get better for you 
because of what you felt you've inherited from your family or that line of family, that can be broken because of uh, newfound life in Christ. And again, spiritually speaking, uh, apart from Christ, you were united to Adam, whether you know it or not. Uh, That nature that you have that constantly sins and constantly messes up, um, that comes from that nature that that you've inherited in Adam. The guilt... And most importantly, your position with God. Uh, you were born already as an enemy of God. So all these things in consideration, Christ becomes your new life. Uh, Christ is that new start. Um, but also Christ is, eternally speaking, your salvation. Um, in Him, you have newness of life. In Him, um, you can be born again. And again, because of His obedience through His life, uh, we can be dead to Adam. We can be dead to that lineage and be alive, spiritually speaking, in Christ. Uh, this concludes the topic of guilt imputed to us. Next week, we'll discuss the actual corruption of our nature and how um, that nature has been inherited through Adam just by being born as a human. And, and we'll talk about what are some of those corruptions uh, mentally, uh, how sin has affected our mind, our thinking, um, and of course, how it affected our soul. Um, so with that said, let me, let me close off in prayer. Father, we uh, thank you for this uh, teaching of guilt, Lord, that we've learned from Scripture. Um, Father, I thank you for your patience with me and um, attempting to put this together, Lord. Um, and I just pray that we would meditate on the reality that apart from Christ and apart from your grace allowing us to be born again through your spirit, we too would still be under Adam. That guilt would still be upon us legally, Lord. You would look at us and we would still be enemies before you, Lord. And we just thank you that you've changed that position and through Christ you've granted us eternal life not only the fact that you promise us an inheritance with you in eternity, but also the fact that we can experience the benefits of eternal life here and now, Lord, living in light of the kingdom of God, Lord. And we just thank you for that um, act of grace that you've granted to us, Lord. And as we get into the main service, Lord, help us prepare our hearts so that we would worship you and honor you in worship, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.